You may wonder why there's a sign for Crane and not O'Rourke. And um, I have no clue, actually. He's here, and I'm going to introduce him just as soon as he gets here. This is his book, and it's got the great um, subhead, Driving Like Crazy, 30 Years of Vehicular Hellbending, Celebrating America the Way It's Supposed to Be, with an oil well in every backyard, a Cadillac Escalade in every carport, and the chairman of the Federal Reserve mowing our lawn. <laughs> only, only PJ would write a, a title like that. Is everyone having fun yet? <laughs> that that was a joke. What? That was a joke, yes. Um... For all of you who are not Cato sponsors, uh, who, are, who are taking advantage of this event without supporting it, you may do so. Actually, no, we don't do that here, do we? We have name tags. Hey, Ed, how are you doing? Good. I don't know what PJ's doing. He was on the Laura Ingram show this morning. Was he really? Mm -hmm. I hope he can get over there. PJ once told me, um, the first time I met him, he'd written this book, Holidays in Hell, which or maybe it was Republican Party Reptile, but it's a hilarious book. And uh, and we had we were we had our building up on Capitol Hill. Some of you remember that. And he was going to um, we had a book party for him, and he came and introduced himself. I said, "I'm a big fan. I love your writing." I said, "Thanks." And and um, Come on, PJ. Uh, why is there no name for PJ? Huh? And why did they applaud for him and not me? Uh, so he comes up, and, and I said, so, uh, you know, if you talk for maybe 15 minutes or something, that'd be fine. He said, what do you mean, talk? I said, well, it's a book party. You've got to talk about your book. And he said, no, you, you think I'm funny, don't you? I said, I think you're hilarious. He said, but it's painful for me to write sentences that turn out funny. And he says, I agree. They are funny. But, um, but I can't do it spontaneously. And sure enough, um, <laughs> anyway, I have some uh, extravagant... Um, uh, bio here that I'll, uh, you'll have to endure. Uh, because most importantly, uh, P.G. O'Rourke is the H.L. Mencken Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That's a title I know he cherishes. It says in his bio that with more than one million words of trenchant journalism under his byline and more citations in the Penguin Dictionary of Humorous Quotations than any living writer. And, of course, once he dies, then he drops way down on the list, <laughs> which is certainly a reason to hang in there, PJ. Um, um, he is, uh, according to his own PR, America's premier uh, political satirist. Uh, he's also the author of at least a dozen books, probably more than that. Of course, that's what at least a dozen implies. Uh, Parliament of Horrors, Republican Party Reptile, 
All the trouble in the world, give war a chance, eat the rich, the CEO of the sofa, holidays in hell, which is my personal favorite, and uh, peace kills and on the wealth of nations, which was a, a book that just came out recently and, and uh, condensed 900 pages of uh, unreadable prose to uh, 200 pages of unreadable prose. <laughs> and he has been... He has been called by the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine as uh, the funniest writer in America, uh, um, reflecting the fact that they haven't read my stuff. Uh, he was born in Toledo, Ohio, which is uh, in the middle of the country somewhere. It's flyover country. And, and attended Miami University, not the right one, the one in Oxford, Ohio. And... Um, he joined in the 70s. He joined National Lampoon, where he became editor-in-chief, and uh, then um, became the foreign correspondent for Rolling Stone magazine, where he wrote some incredibly hilarious stuff. He's written for every magazine you could think of, everything from Car and Driver to Parade to the uh, Weekly Standard and uh, Home and Garden. Um, but... Um, the thing about PJ that I admire most is he is such an incisive and uh, intelligent um, uh, observer of the American polity, of the political scene. Uh, there have been people over the years uh, who may uh, qualify them. It's, uh, Samuel Clemens, uh, uh, the H.L. Uh, Mencken, um, Will Rogers, these are all people who uh, had enormous impact on our society because of their insights. I'm leaving somebody out. Uh, well, Mark Twain, he wrote about the time Clemens did. And uh, you recall that? Econ major. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't major. I majored in. Anyway, um, we are, uh, PJ is a good friend of mine, and, and Cato is just uh, thrilled to uh, have our association with him, and he's written a new book, and I read the uh, long, long subtitle to this already, so I urge you to uh, buy it and let him sign it and make increases the value on eBay by, uh, what, uh, two and a half dollars, and please welcome P.J. O'Rourke. Thank you, Ed. I, I, uh, you know, but uh, to tell the truth, I, I had a little trouble getting Ed interested in this book. It's a book of car journalism, gearhead stuff. And Ed said, well, why do cars have to do with Cato? You know, cars have to do with libertarianism. Ed, Ed. Finally, I had to, uh, I, I had to appeal to the poetic side of Ed to get him to understand <laughs> I, I, the poetic side of it little known poetic side of Ed I wrote him a little poem um, the feminists grabbed our women the liberals banned our guns the health cops snuffed our cigarettes the bailout has our funds the laws of breathalyzing put an end to our roadside bars circle the Fords and Chevys boys they're coming to take our cars <laughs> Finally got through to him what it is, what it is that, 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 that cars have to do with libertarianism. And it is time, alas, to say, how shall we put it, 
sayonara to the American car. The American automobile companies, Ford, GM, even Chrysler, they will live on in some form, kind of a Marley's ghost dragging their chains at taxpayer expense, you know. The fools in the corner offices of Detroit and the fool officials of Detroit's unions, they will retire to their vacation homes in Palm Beach and St. Pete. And uh, they no more deserve our sympathy than do the malevolent trolls under the Capitol Dome down the street here. But pity the poor American car when Congress and the White House get through with it. A lightweight vehicle with a small carbon footprint using alternative energy and renewable resources to operate in a sustainable way. When I was a kid, we called it a Schwinn. (laughs) Oh, well, you know, I mean, it's been a great run. It's been a great run. 110 years since the Duryea brothers built the first American car in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, if the Duryea Motor Wagon Company had been a success... Springfield, Massachusetts might be today's motor city, full of abandoned houses, unemployment, drug dealing, violent crime, and racial tensions, which, come to think of it, Springfield, Massachusetts is full of anyway. uh, But we owe the American car a lot more than just the entertaining spectacle of Detroit's various felon mayors. Uh, in, in, In fact, many people my age owe our very existence to the car, or to the car's back seat, where... Where if our birth date and our parents' wedding anniversary is a bit too close to com- for comfort, <laughs> it's, it's probably where we were conceived. You know, there was no premarital sex in America before the invention of the internal combustion energy. <laughs> engine. I mean, talk about libertarianism here. Come on. You mean, you couldn't sneak a girl into the rec room at your house because your mom and dad were unable to commute, so they were home all day working on the farm. And your farmhouse didn't have a rec room because recreation had not been invented due to all the farm work. You could take a girl out in a buggy, but it was hard to get her in the mood to let you bust into her corset because the two of you were facing the hind end of a horse. <laughs> Spoils the atmosphere. You see, so cars, they, cars let us out of the barn, you know, and, and while they were at it, they destroyed uh, the American nuclear family. And anyone who's had an American nuclear family knows what a relief that was. Um, Cars also caused America to be paved, and there are much worse things you can do to a country than pave it, as the Sudanese have been proving in Darfur. And do we car people ever hear a single word of thanks for paving the nation from all those skateboarders and body casts? No, no, I don't know. Cars fulfilled the Americans' founding father's dream and ideal. Of all the truths that we hold to be self-evident, of all the unalienable rights with which we are endowed, what is the most important to the American dream? It is right there, front and center, raison d'etre of the uh, Declaration of Independence, freedom to leave. Freedom to leave. Freedom to get the hell out of town. Founding fathers, can I have the keys? You know? Car provided America with an enviable standard of living. You could not get a steady job with high wages and health benefits and retirement uh, uh, plan working on the General Livestock Corporation assembly line putting udders on cows. The American car was a source of intellectual stimulation. Think of the innovation, the invention, the sheer genius that transformed the 1908 Model T Ford into the 1968 Shelby Cobra GT500 in the course of one man's lifetime, single lifetime, 
of full of speeding tickets. You compare this to the previously fashionable mode of human transportation. Horse design and production hasn't changed thousands of years, thousands of years. When it comes to creativity, you know, you know, nobody thought to put a stirrup on a saddle until about 500 A.D. Thousands of years, people are riding horses, and they didn't think up the stirrup until 500 A.D. Where did they put their feet? I, you know, I'm now, if automobile engineering and development had proceeded at that pace, we would be powering ourselves down the road by running with our feet stuck through a hole in the floor like Fred Flintstone, you know, which, uh, 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 and it may come to that with the 2010 Obama mobile. You know? <laughs> now, the saga of the American car, this is no abstract matter to be. This is no subject of fanciful theories as far as I'm concerned. I mean, now, Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, they may think they were transported home from the maternity ward on, uh, on pink fluffy clouds supported by cherubs, but I know that it's the car that got me where I am. My grandfather, Jacob Joseph, J.J. O'Rourke, was born in 1877 on a farm the size of a bald patch. I mean, in, 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 in Lime City, Ohio, where there was no city, and for that matter, there was no lime either. Uh, he, uh, my grandfather was one of ten kids. They grew up in a one-room, unpainted shack. I have a photograph of them lined up by age, staring at the photographer, amazed to see somebody in shoes. Yeah, I, I, I'm, my great-grandfather, Barney, was, was a woodcutter in the Midwest, where there are no trees. <laughs> Unemployed a lot. Also drunk and illiterate. Uh, I mean, I have a copy of the marriage certificate with Barney's ex. You know? Barney, his only accomplishment, aside from the ten prizes that he won on the corn shuck stuffing of the poor man's roulette wheel, uh, aside from that, his only accomplishment was to train a pair of draft horses to haul him home, dead drunk, flat on his back, in the unsprung Democrat wagon. You know? So Grandpa Jake, my grandfather, he left home armed with a fifth grade education, headed for the bright lights of Toledo, Ohio, and he went to work as a buggy mechanic. And then one day, a horseless buggy pulled up at the shop, and Grandpa twigged to that right away. And it didn't take Grandpa long to realize that cleaner hands were to be had and more money was to be made by selling the things instead of repairing them. Also, my Uncle Arch's birth date and my grandparents' wedding anniversary were a bit too close for comfort. Um, the upshot by the time that I arrived in the 1940s was O'Rourke Buick. Uh, Grandpa and Uncle Arch owned the dealership. My father was a sales manager. Dad's younger brother ran the used car lot. And baby brother Jack was a salesman. Cousin I ran the parts department. All the, 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 the aunts and all the girl cousins worked in the office. All the boy cousins and I worked out on, on the lot cleaning and waxing the cars. Arch's son-in-law, my cousin Hep, would go on to run the Ohio Car Dealers Association, and I would go on to do what I did in this book, which has something to do with cars. But there are really, there are times, even in these grim days, where I wish I had stayed in Toledo so I could have starred in those, those late-night local TV car dealer commercials, you know. Arr, mateys, sail on down to Pirate Pat's Treasure Island, Buick. <laughs> Poor prices walk the plank. Don't miss our pieces of V8 used car lot. Free chocolate doubloons for the kiddies, you know. Parrot on my shoulder. Grandpa died in 1960, full of years and honors, albeit honors from the Rotary, the Kiwanis, Lions Club, Moose Lodge, Shriners, as befits a good car dealer. Um, but my family just owes everything. We owe everything to the American car. I mean, what with... Not being able to read and write and not having any food and everything. You know, I mean, a rock family history just he doesn't start until the start of the American car. And now some of Rourke's have, have, have even been to college. You know? 
Now, I, I'm not saying we did well there, but we went. You know, I mean, now, so I take the demise of the American car personally. I am looking around furiously for somebody to blame. Ralph Nader, just for instance. I mean, what fun it would be to jump on him with both feet and send the pink Marxist goo squirting out of his cracked egghead. You know? <laughs> and I think we should definitely do that, even though he's 75 and insane. Um, but it took, in fairness, it took more than one man to wreck the most important industry in the nation. Now, see, my girlfriend, Connie, she had one of those Corvairs that Ralph Nader was denouncing in his, in his unsafe at any speed, uh, his, his ignorant, ill-written book. Uh, and, Connie, and Connie had one of these Corvairs, and Connie was, was, she was the worst driver in the world and one of the fastest. You know, if Connie could not get herself killed in a Corvair, it just couldn't be done. You know, so Ralph was full of it. You know? um, now, pundits say that there is plenty of blame to go around for the death of the American car. But I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that either. I mean, because, yeah, it's true, car executives are knuckleheads. But all executives are knuckleheads. Look at Bill Gates. Now, if you were worth a godzillion dollars, wouldn't you, wouldn't you go to a barber college and get yourself a decent $5 haircut? You know, I mean, which is to labor union leadership. You know, they're maddening, but it's one thing to be mad at union leaders and another thing to have expected the union leaders to have been standing up on a chair at the UAW hall shouting, we demand less money from the bosses. You know, it's not going to happen, you know. Yeah, car workers make $600 an hour or so, I'm told, you know, but, but, but they, you know, but on the other hand, they get laid off every time a camel farts at an OPEC meeting, you know, I mean, you know, maybe their pay is too high, but it's not like they're getting that pay, you know, so, so. no, to understand what doomed the American automobile, we have to give up on economics and turn to melodrama turn to melodrama. See, politicians, journalists, financial analysts, other purveyors of banality, they have been looking at cars as if a convertible were a business. I say fire the MBAs, hire a poet, you know. The fate of Detroit is not a matter of financial crisis, foreign competition, corporate greed, union intransigence, energy costs, or measuring the shoe size of the footprint in the carbon, you know. It is a tragic romance, Unleashed passions, titanic clashes, lost love, wild horses. First, the horses. You can't understand cars without understanding horses. A hundred years ago, Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem, Ballad of the King's Jest, where he had an Afghan tribesman, Kipling very ahead of the curve, newswise. Afghan tribesmen say, Four things greater than all things are women and horses and power and war. Now, you insert another power after the horse in that line, and that verse is as true in the suburbs of my boyhood as it ever was in the Khyber Pass. You know? I mean, horsepower. Horsepower is not a quaint leftover of linguistics. It's not a vague uh, uh, metaphoric anachronism. James Watt, father of the steam engine, progenitor of the Industrial Revolution, he lacked, he lacked a measurement for, for the movement of weight over distance and time, what we call energy. He didn't have a, a concept for energy. It, energy was not even an intellectual concept at the late 18th century. In case you think the recent collapse of global capitalism was history's most transformative moment, you know. Imagine a time when there's not an intellectual concept for energy. So Watt did all this research using draft animals, and he found that under optimal com- conditions, a dray horse, could lift 33,000 pounds, one foot off the ground in one minute. Now, Watt, because the, uh, uh, the Watt that was named after Watt didn't exist yet, uh, <laughs> Watt called this 
one horsepower. And it is, by the way, equal to 746 watts. So therefore, your supposedly thrifty Prius could illuminate like a fair stretch of Broadway, you know, causing enough harmful light pollution to offset the detrimental global warming that you prevented by not buying an Escalade. In 1970, a Pontiac GTO, may the brand name rest in peace, had horsepower to the number of 370. In the time of one minute, for the space of one foot, it could move 12,210,000 pounds. And it could move those pounds down every foot of every mile of all the roads to the end of the earth for every minute of every hour until the driver nodded off at the wheel. Forty years ago, the pimply kid down the block, using $3,500 in saved-up soda-jerking money, procured might and main beyond the wildest dream of Genghis Khan, whose horses went forth to pillage, mounted on, uh, 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 mounted on, uh, on less oomph than, 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 than is in a modern leaf blower. Now, Genghis Khan and the pimply kid, they were just looking for dates. That's my theory. Horses and horsepower, they're both about status and about being cool. A knight in ancient Rome, bluntly called, equestrian, a guy on horseback. That's all that means. Chevalier means the same thing, as does cavalier. You lose the capital C on cavalier, and the dictionary says, insouciant and debonair, marked by a lofty disregard of others' interests, rights, or feelings, high-handed, arrogant, and supercilious. And how cool is that, you know? And then there are the cowboys, always cool, right? And the U.S. Cavalry, the, the, the coolie comes to their rescue, plus the proverbially cool man on horseback to whom we turn in troubled times. You know, one reason it's impossible to keep a straight face at anything Washington has to say about the car industry or anything else in this financial crisis is it's a mental picture that I have of Barney Frank astride a prancing steed in the Lone Ranger manner. Yeah? Can you picture that? Hi-ho, executive compensation, and away! (laughs) Early witnesses to the automobile, they urged motorists to get a horse. But that, in effect, was what the automobile would do. It would get a horse for everybody. Once the Model T was introduced, we all became Sir Lancelot. We gained a seat at the round table. We were privileged to joust for the favors of fair maidens at drive-in movies. The pride and the prestige of a noble mount was vouchsafed to the common man. And a common woman, too, because no one ever tried to persuade ladies to drive side saddle with both legs hanging out the car door, you know. Now, a car is not necessarily cheaper than a horse. It's just cheaper than a horse you'd want. I mean, at about the time Henry Ford introduced the the, the, the Model T, $780. He was peddling the Model T for $780, and actually the price would come down from $780. But in 1908, when he introduced that, there was a yearling filly named Scepter. Uh, admittedly, uh, a yearling filly with, with excellent racing bloodlines, but just a yearling, untried, sold at Newmarket in England for 10,000 guineas. Guineas, a pound plus a shilling. 10,000 guineas. Now, if you translate 10,000 guineas in current U.S. dollars, 10,000 guineas is, well, let's just say this, that if former GM chairman Rick Wagner, if it had been him instead of a stallion named Ornament, who had been the stud horse who sired Scepter, GM would have been telling the Obama White House to get some new management. You know? Cars, now cars, especially the cars of yore, they weren't reliable, but neither are horses, you know, at least, at least with cars, it isn't personal. See, horses have, so horses have complex psychologies and itty-bitty brains. Horses are like your adolescent children. Car, cars are like your computer. 
Now, the computer may be bulky, slow, even worthless, but it never dresses itself in all in black, gets every part of its keyboard pierced, screams at you that you don't understand, and goes out and takes drugs and is brought home by the police at 3 a.m. Now, horses actually don't do that either, but you know what I mean. Uh, See, changing a tire on a car, that's no fun, but it is easier than shoeing a horse. And you you won't get kicked or bitten or have manure dumped on your head while you're changing a tire unless you change it in a really bad neighborhood. Uh, You can put a car in dark, cramped, ill-ventilated places and uh, leave it there for months, and the ASPCA won't get on your case. For that matter, cars may be beaten in the street without raising public ire, although it is best if you own that car that you're beating in the street. Um, Even when OPEC is doing its worst, cars are more efficient to fuel than horses, although I will say a roll in the hay is preferable to a roll in the petroleum. But... uh, Anyone who thinks that cars add to greenhouse gases and horses do not has not spent enough time behind a horse. For the purpose of ennobling us schlubs, the car is better than the horse in every way. I mean, even more advantageous than the cost of convenience and not getting kicked and smelly is how much easier it is to drive than it is to ride. Now, I speak with some feeling on this subject because I took up horseback riding. I was nearly 60. And I began to drive when I was so small that my cousin Tommy, had, he had to lie on the transmission hump and operate the accelerator and the brake with his hands while I steered. That's how small I was. After the grown-ups went to bed, Tommy and I, we shifted the Buick into neutral, and we pushed it down the driveway and out of earshot, and we start, started the engine, and we toured the neighborhood. You know? Now, the, the sheer difficulty, comparative difficulty of horsemanship can be illustrated by what happened to Tommy and me next, which was nothing, nothing. We maneuvered the car home, turned it off, rolled it back in the driveway. We were raised in the blessedly flat Midwest, you know, so it wasn't hard to do. Now, during our foray, that Buick speedometer reached, maybe reached 30 miles an hour. But 30 miles an hour on a horse, that is a full-blown gallop on a horse. Now, forget what you've seen of horseback riding in the movies or on TV. Possibly. A kid who had never been on a horse could ride at a full gallop without killing himself, and possibly one of the Jonas Brothers could land an F-14 on a carrier deck. You know what I mean? So thus, cars usurped the place of horses in our hearts. Once we had caught a glimpse of a well-turned Goodyear and checked out the curves on the bodywork and fenders, well, the old gray mare was just not what she used to be. We embarked upon a new life in the fast lane with our new paramour, and it was a great love story of man and machine. The road to the future was paved with bliss. And then we got married and we moved to the suburbs. Now, being away from central cities meant that Americans had to spend more of their time driving. Over the years, uh, uh, that away got, got, got farther away. And eventually, this meant that Americans had to spend all of their time driving. Play date was 40 miles from the Chuck E. Cheese. The swim meet was 40 miles from the cello lesson. The Montessori school was 40 miles from the math coach. Mom's job was 40 miles from dad's job. And the three-car garage was 40 miles from both. You know, Cars ceased to be an object of desire and equipment for adventure, and it turned into office, rec room, communications hub, breakfast nook, recycling bin, a motorized cup holder, you know? Americans, the richest people on earth, were stuck in the confines of their crossover SUVs, squeezed into less space than tech support call center employees in a Mumbai cubicle farm. We became sick and tired of our cars. We even got angry at them. I mean, and I'll tell you, 
pointy-headed busybodies of the environmentalist, new urbanist, utopian, communitarian ilk. They blamed the victim. They blamed the victim. They said that they, they, they said that the car forced us to live in widely scattered settlements in a wilderness of big box stores and the Olive Garden. You know, and, and see if we would all just get on our segways or hop on a trolley. They said America could become an archipelago of cozy gulags on the Portland, Oregon model with everyone nestled together in the most sustainably carbon neutral, diverse and ecologically unimpactful way. Right. But they're wrong. Cars didn't shape our existence. Cars let us escape with our lives. Now, we're out there in Valley Bottom Heights and Trout Antler Estates because we were at war with the cities. We fought rotten public schools, idiot municipal bureaucracies, corrupt political machines, rampant criminality, and all the pointy-headed busybodies. Cars gave us our dragoons, our hussars, let us, lent us speed and mobility, let us scout the train, probe the enemy's lines. And thanks to our cars, when we lost the cities, we weren't forced to surrender. We were able to retreat. But our poor cars paid the price. They are flashing swords beaten into dull plowshares. Cars became appliances, or worse. I mean, nobody's ticked off at the dryer or the dishwasher, much less at the fridge. We recognize these as labor-saving devices. The car, on the other hand, it seems to create labor. I mean, we hold the car responsible for all the dreary errands to which it has to be steered, you know. A golf cart is more fun. You can ride around the golf cart with a six-pack, you know, safe from the breathalyzers, chasing Canada geese on the fairways, taking swings at the gophers with a nine-iron, you know. I mean, we have lost our love for cars and forgotten our debt to them. And meanwhile, back in the city, the pointy-headed busybodies have been exacting their revenge. Now, we escaped the poke of their noses once when we we live downtown, but we're not going to be able to peel out quite so fast again, because in the name of safety, emissions control, fuel economy, all that stuff, the simple mechanical elegance of the automobile has it's been rendered ponderous, cumbersome, incomprehensible. You might as well pry the back off an iPod as pop the hood on a modern car. You know, I mean, it's just aging shade tree mechanic like myself that you see just looks in there, stares the gas and sits back down in the shade. Or I would if the car weren't squawking at me like rehearsal for a divorce, you know. Booze, you'll have to key in. Booze, the door is open. Booze, you'll have the lights on. Booze, you'll have your dirty socks in the middle of the bedroom floor, you know. I don't believe that the pointy heads give a damn about climate change or gas mileage, much less about whether I survive a head-on with one of their tax-sucking mass transit projects. You know, All they want is to make me hate my car. Now, how proud, how handsome would Rachel Alexandra look with seat and shoulder belts, airbags, five-mile-an-hour bumpers, and a maze of pollution control equipment under her tail? You know? It, it, and that's the end of the American automobile. That's it. That's over. You know, because when it comes to dull, practical, ugly things that bore and annoy me, Japanese things cost less, you know, and the, and the cup holders are more conveniently located, you know. Now, I myself, I've got something old school under a tarp in my basement garage. And, and I bet that after my will has been probated, some child of mine will yank the dust cover and use the proceeds of the eBay sale to buy a mountain bike. Four things greater than all things are, and I'm pretty sure one of them isn't bicycles. You know? you know, there are those of us who have had the good fortune to meet with strength and beauty, 
with majestic force in which we were willing to trust our lives. And then a day comes and that strength and that beauty fails and a man does what a man has to do. And I'm going downstairs to that basement garage and put a bullet in a V8. Well, thank you. That's everything I know about uh, cars. Uh, uh, but I'll make up some other stuff if anybody has any questions. But- There's one right down here. We have we have the Mike people, all of them named Mike. <laughs> Actually, probably not her. But uh, thank you very much. Love your books. Um, thank you. Just question: What do you actually drive these days? What do I drive? Golly, it's more like what don't I? I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't collect cars, but I accumulate them. I've got like a 1984 Jeep. I've got a Kubota tractor. I've got two Chevy Suburbans. Because we live way the hell out in the country, out there in Trout Antler Acres, uh, and uh, uh, at war with the public schools. And, and our private school is like 10 miles from the house, you know, so it's like, you know, uh, uh, 40 miles of school driving a day. So we have uh, three kids, three dogs, two Chevy Suburbans, uh, and a close personal relationship with the Saudi royal family. You know, they send us Ramadan cards and whatever, you know, every year. Uh, I've got an old 911 Porsche uh, 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 under that tarp down the garage. Uh, I didn't I didn't specify it because I'm actually going to have to put a bullet in a horizontally opposed six, and that just doesn't sound the same. So um, um, I've got a uh, old 80s BMW uh, 3 Series convertible uh, that also spends its its winter under. And I think if I mow the lawn, I'm going to find some other stuff. <laughs> Sir, yep, right there. Sam Kasman, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, back in the early 70s, the Department of Transportation required a device called the ignition interlock. Ooh, yeah. Which basically did not let you start your car, even just to roll it down the driveway, unless you had buckled your belts. That's right. And within about 14 months, the public got so pissed off that Congress reacted by killing that rule. Now, since then, we've gotten a host of even worse automotive requirements, but you've gotten no guttural response on that level. So is it that Americans have become uh, dumber, more like sheep, or is it that regulators have gotten smarter? Oh, the regulators, I mean, well, a little bit of both, but the regulators have gotten smarter. There's no doubt about it. They, they, they realized that they were, they were too intrusive about this. Uh, actually, the free market seemed to the same conclusion as the regulators did. The Japanese tried to introduce these talking cars, and the cars would tell you what the door is ajar, the door is ajar, and people hated it, just hated it, and so they quit doing it. But the, um, you know, the, the, the seatbelt thing was marvelously self-defeating because people would, would buckle that thing behind them so that they could start the damn car, and not therefore definitely never use the seatbelt because they'd buckle it and tuck it back down inside the, uh, you know, in between the back and the, and the bottom of the seat. And so I suppose we could give good motives to the regulators who decided if we're actually going to increase seatbelt use, this is not the way to do it because this is causing people to do an immediate workaround on seatbelt use. But that's not actually what happened. What actually happened was the regulators realized that they can't be as obvious, that they, if they're going to go about destroying the car, and believe me, that is their purpose. Well, no, they have a larger purpose. A larger purpose is to get involved with every possible aspect of our lives and to make rules about everything that we do, say, how we move, you name it. Cars was a, was a, was a, was a, a, a large, slow-moving target, as it were, due to traffic congestion. It was easy to pick on. So, but they did realize they had to be a little more subtle about this. So what they began doing was instead of dr- doing retail hectoring, 
they did began doing wholesale hectoring. So they attacked the car companies rather than the car consumer. So they're going to the car companies and say, you've got to put ridiculous, stupid bumpers on this car. I don't care how pretty your car is. It can't be pretty. Pretty is against the law. It must be able to run into a bunch of school children at 30 miles an hour. And uh, although it's allowed to harm them, it's not allowed to harm itself. Okay. Uh, the fuel efficiency, cafe standards, you know, none of this. We don't see this stuff. Uh, it rarely obtrudes in our life. Take the lead out of the gasoline so you can't get the, couldn't get the old, you know, you made the, 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 the filler neck smaller so you couldn't get the old. Uh, uh, that's why you have to stand out there. If you have a big SUV like that, you have to stand out there for an hour while the car fills up, you know, because you get this little tiny filler neck so that you can't put the big nozzle in from the leaded gasoline when there still was leaded gasoline, but it all made us so stupid that we voted for Obama and so lead has uh, been banned. They'll wish it were back uh, uh, when we vote them out. But uh, uh, anyway, yeah, so, so it is uh, uh, it, it, the largely it is regulators getting smarter, but it's also the public getting more used to being told what to do. I live in New Hampshire. We are the last state without uh, required seatbelts for use for adults, the last remaining state. And it ain't going to last because the Department of Transportation is going to take away our highway money. Because of that, our seatbelt use is right there in the middle of. Uh, in fact, I think it's above average for for the uh, uh, for, for for the country. But but and it's nothing to do with safety. It is strictly a New Hampshire crotchetiness. It was what what was that? Why is that your business? You know how dumb do you think we are? You know we we're smart enough to use a seatbelt, or if we're not, it's Darwinian. You know, I mean. And uh, but that's not good enough, you know. That's that's going to go away. It will be. That's the same thing with you know with twenty one year old alcohol that was federally enforced, largely through the Department of Transportation. These people want power. Car is a means for them to get power, an easy means for them to get power. But if it weren't the car, it'd be your rider more. They'll take it from anything, anywhere they can. What they want is power, ma'am. Second row down here. Good afternoon. I hear you, Rochelle Moore with Nubian Enterprises. I hear your love for the Model T and the Ford uh, car. Can you tell me, I, I really love the um, Ford Mustang, the convertible. You know, riding, can you imagine or envision uh, us driving down uh, the highway from Los Angeles to San Diego? You know, with the top down. Now, tell me about your feelings about the Mustang. That's how I like the Mustang. Well, it's just, you know, the, the, the best way to understand our love for the automobile is try to think what, try, try to think the, how, how the alternatives will work. Try to think about Prince singing Little Red Segway. <laughs> Does it work? Can we drive down the highway of life in the pink skateboard of no it just you know i mean it, it, it doesn't it just doesn't work nothing has the horse was the only thing that ever had the romance that the car and horse was difficult and expensive and the car is you know much easier and much cheaper if you just think just put that have thelma and louise go over the cliff at the end on a zip scooters <laughs> i thought that movie had a very sad ending not Thelma or Louise. I was ready to be done with them, but the T-Bird. <laughs> oh, 
that hurt. <laughs> that hurt. The, uh, but it, it, you know, if, if you want to know what, what what a gut level feeling that 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 is, try sticking, you know, a, a, an electric trolley into a Beach Boys song. You know, <laughs> you get that. Doesn't work, ma'am. Green sweater or blouse or green item of clothing. <laughs> um, I'm interested in your comments about cars being a source of freedom because that's a thing that I come across a lot. But I'm also interested to, he- excuse me, to hear what you have to say about roads because you mentioned highway funding earlier, and um, I'm not too aware of many roads that are built without government funding. And so, how can you? claim that cars are a source of freedom when they're almost entirely dependent on government-funded roads. Well, the thing is that, that, that that's important, if you go back historically, important to understand is that the car predates the road. And one of the reasons that cars, old cars, look the way they do, the reason they stand up so high, and the reason that they're on very uh, uh, narrow carriage-like wheels is that they are meant, they're essentially off-road vehicles. I mean, what passed for a road in those days was not what would pass for a road today. There aren't many things we can buy uh, that would get down uh, uh, the road of the turn of the last century. So the, 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 the pavement, there was some pavement in the city, uh, in cities previous to the automobile, but very little. Pavement was essentially, uh, 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 it came after the car. Now, how pavement got funded is one of the reasons that we're in trouble today. Pavement didn't get funded. There were some attempts at private roads. These did not work out very well. You can understand what the problem with private privatization of roads is because a privatization of roads runs up against the eminent domain difficulty. When you go to build, a, you know, a private superhighway across the nation is a wonderful idea, but you're going to need some government involvement because if you want that if you don't want that highway to shift every time it comes to somebody's property line you know i mean that that that, that that's so six lanes in los angeles if if you had to fight it out with every single property owner without the power of eminent domain it'd be you know it it wouldn't be a super highway it would be less than super but also we let the funding we kept kicking the funding upstairs the natural funding source for roads is government at its lowest level, at the, at, at the local level, at the county level. And up until after World War II, most roads were county roads. Few of the main big roads were state roads, and even fewer roads were national roads, and that was mostly a designation, and it was large, they were largely paid, with, paid for and maintained with state funds. And as we turned over the funding, because it's always tempting not to fund things locally, it's always, it's always tempting to look for the next source of the deeper pockets and say, oh, my gosh, our little school district can't afford decent schools. We have to get the county involved. We have to get the whole county involved. Oh, our county's poor compared to some other counties. Let's get the state involved. Well, our state's poor compared to some other states. Let's get federal money. Let's get the no child left behind is what I say. You know, let's, let's, get, let's get some federal money in here. We did the same thing with roads. And so we progressively turned our freedoms over to more and more distant forms of government. Now, anybody who's dealt with local government knows that local government is as stupid, more stupid, more corrupt, probably, more idiotic than federal government. But what it also is is much less powerful, and it is a lot easier to move to the next town than it is to move to the next country, which happens to be Canada, which is even worse than our country. You know, 
So it's always best to keep government at the smallest and most local level. Not because those governments are better. They're not. They're actually worse, to tell you the truth. And they're harder to keep track of and so on and so forth. But, but, but they do not have the, 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 the power. The, 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 you know, their, their power is equal only to their responsibility. They don't have a greater, larger power. So that, that is the problem, the problem with roads. Privatization is a possible solution. Um, uh, uh, certainly an adjunct solution. It is not a complete solution because of the eminent domain problem. It's one of those, you know, conundrums of governance that, that, that is at the core of what, why, why you can't just be an unthinking libertarian. Why you have to be a thinking libertarian is when you run up against conundrums like that. Ma'am, right in the back. Right, yes, or on the aisle or whatever that is. Thank you. I do hope you name your cars because I name mine. You don't. Um, Actually, they come with names. I only have. One. <laughs> they huh? come with names. You know, it's a Porsche 911. You know, <laughs> no, 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 no. you know my, my you know like, women name cars. You know, Henry Honda. Yeah, right. <laughs> women name cars. My sister's always named yeah, their right. cars. It's you know? great. Uh, guys just think. Of course, guys say you know guys think babies come from names at the hospital. You know, it got a little bracelet on it. it says male, female. You know, so not, my daughter should be female O'Rourke. You know, larger so female or smaller like female or now. Yeah. Tell me, how do you think the uh, alcohol industry is handling um, ethanol and our gasoline now? Are we having a fight going on here, or uh, or is this a problem? Are you talking about alcohol in our uh, alcohol in ourselves or alcohol in our gas tank? Both. Yeah. Both. <laughs> alcohol belongs in us. It doesn't belong in the gas tank. Right, so how are we? Yeah. Gonna, how are we going to get? Only the, one thing. It's, it's simple. And you can prove this to anybody, right, left, or center. It isn't even Rahm Emanuel could be sat down and shown this in black and white. Producing ethanol creates more pollution, costs more, and obviously costs more, or it it wouldn't be more expensive, would it? You know, price is information. Um, But even to the left, have to have you know some recognition of this. But but it, it, it it creates more pollution than it cures. And it makes us not 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 less dependent on foreign energy sources, but more dependent on foreign food. You know, it hurts our car engines. It hurts our car engines. It's terrible on the car engines. All the old gaskets and all the old fittings on automobile engines are rotted by the. By the, I had a long talk with my mechanic on why why my my old Jeep keeps dripping fluids, and it's the ethanol. The ethanol eats the old parts. They, they, they weren't made ethanol-proof. Uh, alcohol is a solvent, as we all know. Our good sense dissolves in it frequently, every evening in my case. And, but then there's a whole other question of, of civil liberties about the DUI. But the, in, in, why on earth is somebody allowed to stop you as if this were North Korea and analyze your body fluids when you've done nothing wrong? You know, it's, it, it is, I mean, it's, and, and the blood alcohol level stand have gotten to the point where you cannot go to mass, 8 a.m. mass, and you can't drive the rest of Sunday you know, <laughs> if you take communion. You know, you got to stick, no, just away for Father. Sorry, I got to drive. You know. <laughs> it's insane, you know. I mean, so, and, and, and I was talking to this about, somebody saying, well, what about teenage boys always getting in? And I said, the problem is not that 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 the uh, the problem I said is not beer. The problem is bravery. Teenage boy beer makes teenage boys brave. That's a bad thing. They're already too brave. 
So you don't want to give them like brave juice, you know, to make them extra brave. And I said, the solution is not DUI laws or making the driving age 35 or any of the rest of that stuff. The, the, the secret is drugs, drug legalization. I said, now, you go back to when I was young and drinking beer and driving, but I was also taking LSD. <laughs> and you're going down the highway and a little mile marker start to march out into the road, you know, the sinister little green heads with the numbers on them, you know. And then the big yellow, double yellow stripe gets up, you know, and kind of like does the cobra thing. <laughs> and, and then you come to the underpass, the gaping jaws of hell, abandon all joyriding ye who enter here. And the next thing you know, you get pulled over for going 15 in a 75 mile an hour zone, you know. I said, so, you know, just take the bravery out of the kids, you know. And... Sir. G'day, PJ. My name's Ben Goodfellow, a psychiatrist from Melbourne, Australia. Ah, I was, just o- I was just over there, and actually I wasn't in Melbourne, so I don't know if you particularly need psychiatrists in Melbourne, but oh, seems like a pretty well-adjusted country, generally speaking. We need them all over the place. I just missed you in Sydney, actually, ah. so I came all this way just for today's session. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering how you maintain your optimism and humor in the face of uh, so much of a retreat from freedom. I guess, do you have any advice as to how, as individuals, we can take the car keys back? Well, it's, you know, the thing, I think the only reason I maintain any optimism about this is that I'm old. And I'm old enough to realize that freedom is always under attack. This is a never-ending struggle. And if we look back, of course, to the freedom of history, you know, most of the stuff that's under attack right now, uh, business and, you know, are, are the kind of freedoms I'm talking about in car pale by comparison to the kind of attacks upon freedom in the past. Think of slavery, of human bondage, of people not holding a clear title to themselves. Now that is an attack upon freedom, you know. Think of like Aztec human sacrifices. Attack on freedom? I think so. <laughs> Rip your heart out while you're still alive. Roll your body down the pyramid. Bad attack on freedom, you know. Freedom is always under attack. Overall, in the arc of human history, you know, at least since the Renaissance, the the direction's been pretty good. But that's not to say there haven't been major, major setbacks. Nazi Germany, communism, stuff like that, you know. So you just got to realize that it's that it's always going to be there and you're always going to have to stand up uh, up to it. The job's never going to be finished. And I just, you know, as as I get I I just I so want to thank Clint Eastwood for making Grand Torino. You know, because I've been channeling that character for a long time and didn't know it. And then I saw the movie and I realized that, you know, that my motto, the words I live by are, get off my lawn. <laughs> get off my lawn. I don't, uh, you know, violence is bad. Your thanks are almost as bad. Just get off my lawn. <laughs> we have time for a couple more questions. Ma'am. What would you wait oh, for them? Oh, I'm sorry. Here, here it comes. As a owner of an old classic, they don't they don't work if they're not on. Even oh okay. Okay, I uh, gave my son my '64 Corvette, which I made him promise he would keep. Oh, '64 Corvette, nice. And uh, if he 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 can't sell it, if he doesn't want it, he has to return it to me. Good. Uh, what do you think will happen to cars like that? How will they stay on the road if all cars are going to meet a certain 
mileage requirement for gas? My guess is that as long as us baby boomers and our obsession with automobiles, as long as we're around and we're still a voting block, and it do, we do look determined not to die ever, you know what I mean? <laughs> so we're going to be around for a while. Uh, they'll they'll do a grandfathering. You'll be allowed to have your Corvette, you know. But then someday when we're all gone and we're not a voting block anymore and, like, the kids don't really know what that stuff was and don't have the same feeling for it, though, when they're back, when they're not paying attention, they'll take it away, you know. One more. Back there. I'm Bianca from Metro State. Hi. Hi. Uh, My dad has this really funny theory about cars that I thought I'd share with you. He says that the older cars are going to be the status symbol because everyone's going to have the same little green car, but then, like, someone's going to roll by in a 1960 Mustang, and they're like, that person's awesome because all the new cars are going to look the same. It's true. It's, I mean, it's an interesting shift in status. You take, you go back to the 1950s, and you take, like, some junk you know, like a, a Ford custom sedan, four-door sedan, something that actually my grandmother, I, 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 my first car was a 1956 salmon pink four-door Ford custom sedan. Embarrassing. I'm, you know, and, and like, you know, there was, I could get it painted. I was saving up to get it painted when I wrecked it, um, you know, uh, and I could jack it up in front and lower it in the back, but there was nothing I could do about those four doors. And in, in those days, you know, if there was no shame, like having a four door car, except having a station wagon was even worse. Anyway, you take the worst piece of junk from back in the sixties, you know, so, so, something that like no, uh, from back in the fifties, back in the sixties, something that no, no, no cool kid would have been caught dead driving in it. And now it just looks spectacular. The most ordinary piece of automobile that you could possibly imagine, a damn Nash Rambler, looks spectacular next to these, like, cell phones on wheels that are out there, you know? I mean, they look like nothing. You go out there and you go, like, you know, here we have the $100,000 Lexus, and right next to it is the $11,000 Kia, and you tell them apart, you know? I mean, I'm I'm sure the Lexus is a better car and all that kind of stuff, but, I mean, they both look like a blob, you know? No, nothing looked like a blob back in the fifties or back in the sixties. You know, I mean, there was there was no no blob about it. And so, yeah, it's going to become a strange sort of reverse status symbol, like you know, like 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 not not having a cell phone. You know, I always think that's one of the greatest greatest possible indication of status would be to be unreachable. <laughs> she's totally unreachable. Try and get the Queen of England. Yeah, the President of France couldn't get the Queen of England. Thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, PJ. Um, you know, I, I uh, uh, drive a Ford Expedition, which gets uh, uh, several miles to the gallon. And uh, I told my wife that one day Obama is going to take my car away from me. She says, when that happens, it won't be a one million man march. It'll be a five million man march. And I hope that's the case. In any event, we have books upstairs for sale. We have the memorial Milton Friedman Free Lunch. And uh, invite you all to join us.